0: Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and he's my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. Morning, Mom.
1: Morning. Beautiful day again.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I just wish it would make up its mind whether it's spring or not. You know what's going (laughs) to happen? I'll get there eventually. (laughs) What's going to happen is we're going to go straight from cold to
2: hot. Right. We had a few days in Chicago of 80. It went from... Yes. You know, forty to eighty, and then it snowed, yes. and all the flowers died. Yeah, <laughs> we're in Iowa,
0: so we're we're experiencing the similar similar journey here this spring of twenty twenty three. You never know when someone's going to actually be listening to this. You know, that's the thing about uh, our worldwide right. web nowadays.
2: I'm actually. shifting. You have yeah. to say when it is. Yeah. That's-
0: <laughs> so, Caroline, who is our guest today?
1: Well. Talk about a page-turner. This is absolutely a page-turner. You Should Have Known is the title of this book, and Rebecca Keller is an award-winning writer, an internationally exhibited artist, a college professor, a Fulbright artist scholar, and recipient of grants from National Endowment for the Arts, Illinois Arts Council, and College Art Association. So... (laughs) <laughs> this, is, this is some book, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you liked it.
0: So welcome to Writer's Voices, Rebecca Keller. So your career in writing has been kind of on the serious side up till now. Is that is that fair to you say? Know, uh, serious in terms
2: of... Content
0: uh, and subject
2: matter. Yeah, well, my career has been um, focused mostly on visual art. As you mentioned, I'm a visual artist. And as part of that, I've done a lot of writing, both about my own work and in development for my own work, grants, all that kind of stuff. Is that if that's what you mean by serious? They're, yeah. They're, well, I'm, I'm ta- yeah. I'm,
0: when I look you up, I found this uh, excavations of oh, right. excavating history. Yes, excavating, excavating history. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about what that is?
2: I'd be happy to. You're the first person who's asked about that, so I'm sort of, you know, uh, a career that. Um, so you know, sometimes I want people. I always tell people to imagine being at cross country skis or roller skates or something where you have to, you know, kind of keep your legs in alignment. And sometimes one starts to go off sideways, and pretty soon you realize you're in trouble because you're doing the splits. <laughs> My my career has kind of been like that in in that my various, I'm always looking for ways to knit my various interests together. I'm interested in history. I'm interested in writing. I'm interested in public history, like public historic sites. And I'm an artist Um, and I have a background in museums. So excavating history was sort of a, a way to knit those together. And so I sometimes solo, sometimes with collaborators, sometimes with my students, would create projects in, um, in public historic sites, like a, a historic house, for example. Oh. Or um, I did one in Estonia that was an anatomy theater that was built in the 1700s. Um, and, you know, these places have stories that they tell, but often the stories are incomplete or they're kind of not interesting <laughs> <laughs> or they skip over things that maybe are inconvenient or that maybe are suggested but not quite provable. And so my, I, or, and my collaborators and I would kind of dig in and do some research and come up with creative things to do in the collection with the house, with the architecture to, um, to kind of complicate the stories it tells and to make it more interesting and to just sort of intervene in all kinds of ways, maybe to make it more accurate. Sometimes these places, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, calcified in time and the the scholarship is updated or maybe people visit once and they don't see a reason to visit again because it hasn't changed so these are all uh things that excavating history does so it's kind of an umbrella term for a series of projects and sometimes the projects were writing Uh and sometimes they were performances and sometimes they were classes or public programs and sometimes they were objects that were were made and 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 exhibited in in the house so um So, so, and then because of that, they became, there was a lot of interest in this work. And so it became, um, I was invited to write a book about it. So I both am, I'm basically, I guess, a contributed editor. I wrote a long essay. Some of the other collaborator, collaborators have written essays. Some of the curators we worked with have written essays. So, so yes, that's, that was my, (laughs) and it's part of the reason why it took me so long to publish a novel because it was kind of a detour. (laughs) <laughs> to
0: ah make okay okay so it's a
2: beautiful, the designer did a beautiful job so it has a lot of images and a lot of artwork it's kind of a, a hybrid work
0: so that sounds really interesting but and but given that one might expect you would write a historical
2: novel I know and <laughs> I know right I know or about art, right? Yes, because art yes. schools are pretty interesting places. And I've spent most of my life in art schools. I'm sure you could, you could set a suspense novel in an art I school. It, I, <laughs> I mean, and and some of my classes, uh, in addition to the excavating history, deal a lot with history. But for some reason, that just didn't, you know, grab... There's a number of, of things that have occurred to me, like, oh, that would make a really interesting subject for a book. But um, But this... You know, this is is kind of what happened. I, I can't. explain.
0: <laughs> so you should have known is um, suspense. Is that what? Yes, you should, I think what we that's. Would call it? Yeah, and it's um, has uh, an elderly protagonist, which is unusual. Yes. Can you tell us why you decided to do that?
2: Well, the first thing I want to say is because it had an elderly protagonist, it was very hard to get published. I can't tell you how many agents said to me, I love this book. I love your writing, but I don't think I can sell a book with an older protagonist, which struck me as a distinct failure of imagination, in all honesty. Because, I mean, who reads books, right? And, and of course, as you – I'm so delighted to be talking to mother and daughter team – because uh, the mother-daughter relationship is, is quite significant in this book. And, um, and older women and middle-aged women are a huge market for fiction. Right. Right? And I just thought, come on, you know, we're not all 25 or, you know, 14. And so, uh, so I just want to say that, that, that was really, it was, that was one of the challenges of, of the book um why i decided to do an older protagonist is i was interested in uh, i wanted to write a kind of a morally complicated character and i was interested in the idea of somebody who just you know has had to swallow the mundane injustices of the world as we all do and gets to a certain point just says you know she She acts on perhaps her worst impulse, but it's informed by a kind of fundamental anger at people in power getting away with stuff and um you know not ever and especially you know in the case of the kind of the like, i suppose for lack of a better word villain in this book um you know who kind of poses these morally you know upright you know people full of rectitude rectitude and and uh sort of pomposity. But never really stopped to examine the wider repercussions of their actions, and so um, it struck me wanting to have somebody who might step outside the straight and narrow. There had there had a couple challenges with that. One was that they had to, I had to give them, I had to make them uh, like. I wanted, Fran, I think, Franny very likable, and I wanted people to continue to like her and to be in her corner even when she does something she shouldn't. And so you ha- you know I had to make her both um I had to I had to make her alive on the page and also make it believable that she would do this and and having done it make it still forgivable that you're still in her corner yeah and so you know justice is a you know someone really hurt her really broke her family and um and that's kind of the the impulse. And, and there's all kinds of evidence in the book that she's a very kind and caring person, very upright and ethical person, actually, in generally speaking. But this, this aberration was just prompted by her, her desire for this kind of vengeance. But to get to your question about being older, you know, before I arrived at Franny, I was thinking, well, if I want to write about this, what? So somebody has to have a reason that is compelling, but they also have to be less fearful of consequences, Right, and if, you know, if you're a parent with three-year-old kids, you're not going to risk going to jail, you know. Um, but if, first of all, the situation of older people in this culture are they're kind of invisible, you know. We don't think they have agency, especially women. We don't think of them as active, you know, shapers of their own destiny beyond a certain age, and. So Franny realizes that in that invisibility, and I realize that in that invisibility, there's freedom. And, uh, and also, Franny's like, I'm not likely to get caught because who's going to look at me? Who's going to suspect me? Nobody thinks an old lady can do anything. And if they did catch me, what are they going to do? You know, throw me in jail? And um, so she's, in some ways, she's, the stakes are different for her. In some ways, she already feels like she's in jail, in a sense. (laughs) She feels like a lot of, you know, her her actions are curtailed as it is because of her situation. But what gives her pause, of course, is what this will do to her family. Yeah. How old is Franny? So she's 72 in the book as published. When I wrote the book, she was 80.
0: Okay. um, All right.
2: Okay. Because she
0: seems older than 72 to me.
2: Well, she was, <laughs> only she was older than seventy-two. And this was one of the compromises. Uh the the pe- the I still don't have an agent. All these agents said I love this book, but I don't think I can sell an older protagonist. I was fortunate to um uh, I, I kind of on a just like, well I'll give it a shot, I sent it directly to an editor at Crooked Lane, Tara Gavin, who is the editor of, of it who is my editor. And she got back to me right away. And she really liked it. And she made several suggestions not for not major changes, but they were all really smart. And that made me really think that she gets the book, she gets the character, she understands the dilemmas and the themes. But the one thing that she did ask for was to make Franny younger. And we settled on... Uh, 72 or 73 or something um, and the reason was for the marketability of the book. <laughs> okay
0: but I gotta say <laughs> as someone who's not all that far away from that age I'm like 72 totally, year olds are not this decrepit <laughs> no, I
2: totally no and of course there are people in there are yes. people who have had yes. um, physical impairment even you know yes. I have a friend who's in their fifties in assisted living, so it's not within the it's not without plausibility.
0: Right, But right. I, agree
2: with I, 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 you know, so I and I did go in and, and change some of her, um, her physical ailments and some of the thoughts in her head, but I actually, I actually think that some of her reflections on aging, and and workarounds that she develops, um, to accommodate her, you know lack of energy or painful knees or whatever it is. I found them very interesting, and I thought people would respond to them. So I was trying, sort of trying to walk a fine line. Well,
0: 72-year-olds can yeah. definitely have knee issues, that's for sure. You
2: know, there's a lot of <laughs> knee replacements
0: in the, in our <laughs> 60s <think>. and, <laughs> right. and even 50s right. sometimes. But also, I wonder, was um, Evan, who I think is 79, was he originally older also?
2: No, he no. was the age... Yeah. Okay,
0: because yeah, because he makes a comment about sort of being ready to die at any time or something, and most seventy nine year olds or people in their late seventies I know are not there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. I think at the end
0: well I think he doesn't say he it's not like he wants to No, no, but just I mean, that he knows he could go any time.
2: Yeah. And yeah. yeah. I think he's made his peace with the fact that, you know, he he is he, he can't count on uh you know, I mean, none of us can count on tomorrow, right, I suppose. Right. Um, yeah. But but when you're 79, you can count on it less than when you're 59. Yeah. Um. So he and, and I think he's just sort of more of a of a, you know, fatalist. But people say that all the time. You know, pe- I hear people it's say several, Yeah. You know, if if I ever am in that you know situation, I don't want to live. But yeah. I have a feeling that when they're there, they're going to reconsider that.
0: I know. I know.
2: Yeah, I think
0: about that sometimes about if you if you had a clear-cut choice like um if you had a disease that the treatment was very um onerous and unlikely to succeed. Yeah. And going without treatment you're able to function normally for a longer period right, right of down. time. Mm-hmm. But that's never that clear-cut. The choice is never that
2: clear-cut. Right, and usually, you know, we've, you know, it's just like, like the water's rising. You, you accommodate yourself. You know, your life shapes to what your, what your situation is, and so, you know, I mean, maybe as you become um, less, maybe you become less able to drive or less able to do things in the world, but you read more. You know, I mean, yeah, you, yeah. Um, so you, you shift, and yeah. uh, consciousness shifts. And that, But that doesn't mean that what you have is any more precious. And as you say, it's very rarely a binary, like, well, it's this or that.
1: Right, you know? right, yeah. I was wondering how, how you came to uh, choose this title, You Should Have Known. Boy, you guys are just going, like, right for the target areas, <laughs> because that is
2: not, that was not the title it was written with. Mm. Uh, it was not the title I submitted it with. Again, I think it was a marketing decision. I actually think it's a pretty good title uh I'll be honest I did perhaps um I would have liked to <coughs> excuse me. I would have liked to have maybe had one more back and forth with the uh with the publisher to land on I felt like there was a, a title that was even more perfect just around the corner um but they 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 wanted a title that felt more. A mystery-like, that felt yeah. uh, more suspense-like. Uh, mine had been a little bit more uh, literary, I think. So um, so can you tell uh, us what your original title was? The original title was What the Body Remembers. Oh. And uh, and it, it came from that a scene in which she recognizes who Nathaniel was. Yeah. And she kind of feels it in her body before she consciously realizes it um but you should have known i i i like it because it kind of it's something that we've all said to ourselves and to other people like you should have known and usually it's implied better or you should have known this would happen or you should have known that would happen and so much of the book is her um doing something that she knew better than to do mm-hmm. and um and suffering you know for it yes <laughs> so yeah. mm-hmm. and also you know it kind of works both ways Nathaniel should have known as well you know there's a lot of people who should have known better yes. and um, and so the you you know we thought about she we thought about I but the you leaves it kind of open in terms of you know who exactly you know is this pointing to and it's pointing to more than one person
1: I think right so it was a good choice <laughs> Thank you <laughs> so Caroline,
0: you you mentioned last night you were curious how
2: long it took Rebecca to write this book. Yes, Well, again, a very good question, and it would be hard for me to it's hard for me to actually answer because um, I didn't write it all in one obviously all in one go but but um, i i I wrote. So it, it, I I I began um something that a story that had some of the beginning DNA of this book many many years ago it was a very short story um and then I wrote another kind of beginning of something that had another bit of the DNA in this book and I didn't think of them as being together then um and and I so I so, let me back up. About twelve years ago, um, as you know, I'm a visual artist, and you get plenty of rejection and work for no money as a visual artist. So why, twelve years ago or so, I, a book took a book took me by the throat and just wouldn't let go, and I decided, okay, <laughs> I guess I'm gonna do this let, so let's try I, another avenue for rejection. That's right. Let's try another avenue. I need more rejection. In uh, so I, I wrote this, this, not this book. I wrote a book, finished it. Uh, and I'm sure if I were to dig it out of that hard drive in my, um, you know, my, my hard drive, I would cringe to read most of it, but I learned, you know, I learned. Um, and so, you know, I made, I had made this commitment that I, I want to learn to do this. And after I finished that book, I then started, um, some short fiction that I conceived of as kind of a novel in stories, you know, something like Olive Kitteridge or something like that, where stories are related to one another and they form a, a tale. And um, and because I found that, given how busy I was with other areas of my life, with excavating history and everything else, that I uh, short fiction fit a little better, in in or thinking of it in that way, fit a little better in that my my time schedule. So, um, I started doing that and then, you know, excavating history really took off. It was in a lot of exhibitions. I was very busy with that and the book came out. Um, but I still had, you know, I was publishing some short stories, even though I realized that short fiction is not really, I feel like a a novel is more my, my bag. Um, my now more, more of a natural fit for me in a way. Um, I was you know one won a few awards and for some short fiction and um and then i I really had this idea that I wanted to to write about somebody that uh, who who was harmed in a kind of in a way that wasn't necessarily directly direct. I keep thinking of it as um, you know a stone thrown in a pond. the person's throwing the stone, maybe an evil doer throwing the stone making the gesture only sees a little bit of what happens. They don't see the repercussions further out. And I really Mm -hmm. wanted to explore the, the idea of culpability for all of your actions beyond that you can easily name and, and, um, and someone who is harmed and wants vengeance for that. So that was kind of an abstract thought, but I, it kept, I, I liked the idea. I really liked that idea. So, uh, I don't know exactly when, but those two short stories that had the kind of some of the DNA uh, occurred to me. And things really came together when my own mother entered assisted living. And I started thinking about, wow, you know, there's a reason that so many books are put in a uh, confined kind of situation, you know, boarding house or a school or a small town because everybody knows one another and it, it, you know, people are in one another's business and people have histories with one. another. And I thought in an assisted living place in a small town, um, you know, at one point Franny doesn't want to move because she says, i I'm afraid I'm going to run into everybody I ever had a fight with at the PTA. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, <laughs> it's, this, and plus you don't know what people actually remember because in this case, people's memories might not also be terribly, accurate. So for all those reasons, I thought this was a great setting. And um, the, you know, the idea of being older and having different kind of stakes in your actions, it all kind of came together. So when I re- re-looked back at those shorter, you know, unfinished pieces and saw how they could, they gave me ideas for the development of the book. That's a very long answer to your question. And <laughs> Yes. The short answer is I can't even answer it because it's it's not you know I wrote it in chunks and in fits and starts, um, but I seriously dug into it at around twenty and I think around 20, 2015, 2016, finished it the first time in twenty eighteen, and then rewrote the second half second last third of it um, again. <laughs> And, and sent it out to agents. I was trying to find an agent the same week that COVID hit. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. <laughs> and the world just went bananas. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of the timeline. And, and then, um, and I, you know, I had, as I said, I had about for about a year. I had a lot of agents saying I really love this book, but I don't think I can market it. And then in late 2021, I sent it to Kirkwood Lane.
0: And now it's come oh, out, no. coming out in May.
2: It came well, out in April. It came, or came out, out in April. Okay, April fourth was the publication. It's pub birthday.
0: Oh, congratulations! how How does that feel?
2: It feels awesome. It feels <laughs> great to walk into a bookstore. And in fact, a friend of mine uh, contacted me and said, "You know, I went into." She already has her copy. She said, "But she wanted to buy an." A, f- a friend of hers a copy and she walked into one of the biggest Barnes and Nobles in the country. She lives in New York. And she asked about, it, she said, Oh, we, the person said, we just sold out, but more on order. And I thought, you know, that, oh. that was a really great film. <laughs> that really
0: <laughs> That's yeah. wonderful. That's yeah. Great. Now have you That's gone amazing. into a bookstore and seen it on the yes. shelf? Yes.
2: Yes. In fact, just yesterday I was at Prairie Lights and I was sitting.
0: Oh, that's, I saw that. I saw that. So um did you, you gave a reading?
2: I, I gave a like? reading and, and signed books and it was really exciting. I mean, oh. I've had a number of, of events, but you know, that was uh in some ways, that's such an important literary, uh, you know, location right. yes. that I was really excited to be there. And the, the turnout was great and the questions were excellent and, you know, you, you um, Iowans, are such great readers. All of you have, everybody from Iowa has asked great questions. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to
0: Writers' Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Rebecca Keller, author of You Should Have Known. So, do you have a connection with um, the writing program in, in Iowa City at all? Have no, you ever no, come to any of the only, workshops
2: or? No, only very tangentially. Um, In that Abby Jeannie, who was my interlocutor yesterday, um, is a Chicago, she's a graduate of the um, workshop and uh, and, an affiliated faculty with it. She teaches there on occasion. And she also is associated with an organization here in Chicago called Story Studio. And some years ago, I took a class at Story Studio in which she was the instructor. I've never had, I mean, that's the closest I've come to formal uh, fiction really? uh, uh, instruction. <laughs> I mean, I have an MFA in visual art. I have an MA in visual art. Um, you know, I was, I was late enough in life when I started that I thought I just, I can't step away from my life as an art professor with an MFA and teaching graduate students who are getting an MFA into a different kind of, a MFA pro. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And so I did my, you know, I did a lot of reading. I would, you know, I would educate myself in all kinds of ways. And one of the ways uh, was a, a, a class that Abby offered at story studio. And it was also partly, I wanted a community. I wanted a sense of other writers and what they were going through people in, in a similar situation to me. So, uh, so that's my, my, my connection, and and I have a, a friend in Iowa City, um, and I I have actually gone to some summer like reading programs and things there.
0: Yeah, I've both Caroline, Caroline and I have attended um, at some of the Iowa Summer Writing Festival workshops right. over the years. Which are really exciting. Yeah, and we they are, are the- going back. Uh, They're coming back this summer. They've been online the last three years, I think, and I think they're actually having some live events again this summer. Yeah.
2: Wonderful. Yeah, so that's my only connection, but I was really thrilled to be able to to go. I was (laughs) thrilled to be there and to have Abby there.
0: Well, Prairie Lights is, yes, certainly one of the top independent bookstores in the country along with book people in Austin, which is where I spend, you know, when I'm not in Iowa, I'm in Austin. And, awesome. Um, yeah, and it's a great we place. We like those college yeah. towns. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, there's something about a college town. I
2: know, I know. I know there is. And there
0: unfortunately, is. the college in Mom's town down the road here in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, is closing at the end of this year. iowa Wesleyan. It's very oh. sad. Yeah.
2: Well, no, these small liberal arts schools are have been struggling. I, and as a as a faculty in an institution of higher ed, I totally, I'd, you know, pay attention to the economics of it and to the, it's a struggle. It's a well, struggle. it's hard
0: to, you know, why would someone choose to go to a small liberal arts school in the middle of nowhere Right. unless they had something really
2: extraordinary? It's, right. it's hard. And as many of them are extraordinary, but, but there's many of them. Yes, yeah, you know, which are all extraordinary in their own way, but there's just simply not i mean we don't the demographics are not in their favor, yeah, uh, as well and, as and the economics
0: thing. are definitely not in their favor, and that and, was always one of the one of the issues I had with this the concept of free college was it would have been the if, if we had made public colleges free to everyone, that would be the death knell of the small private liberal no, arts I, school. I,
2: have, I had that same thought. And yeah. I also thought, you know, there's an easy way to do this. Just make Pell Grants much bigger and much more available. And then you preserve student choice. Yes,
0: yes, absolutely. So because I, you
2: know, at an art school, uh, you know, um, we would have been in, also in, in trouble. Who would, who would select a private art school? given yeah. no matter the excellence of the right. education. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I because I just thought it was inventing something that didn't need to be, um, you know, that there, there were other op- options. Other, other ways
0: to do it. Right, mm-hmm. right. Rebecca, would you like to read from You Should Have Known for Us? Sure. I have to say, I'm always sort of flummoxed by what. <laughs> um... <laughs> yeah, because you don't want to read You don't want to give any
2: spoilers. Right. So... <laughs> and and yeah. I also, you know, um, there's things that work on the on the um, on the page that may be a little more lyrical or literary that I wonder how they should um, how they are to listen to. So what would you suggest? Something with more dialogue or something a little bit more internal? I think dialogue. Okay. Okay. So um, this is from chapter four. The one caveat I have to give is that, uh, so, so Franny, the, the setup is that Franny Green is, a, as we've said, a 72-year-old former nurse who uh, has had a few falls, and um, at the urging of her children, uh, but with some reluctance has moved into an assisted living apartment. And while she's there, she meets a woman named Catherine. She becomes good friends with Catherine. And despite the fact that Catherine is very different than she, and she, um, the, the, the kind of heartbreak of this is that, um, shortly after she meets Catherine, um, she has a realization that Catherine's husband is a corrupt judge who she believes uh, is responsible for the death of her granddaughter and the real break up, breakdown of her family. But this is before that happens. She's recently met Catherine and uh, and I'll take it from here. And I'm going to attempt a slight Southern accent. I'm not an actress. So, <laughs> so forgive me. <laughs> oh, all right. The next morning, there was a do- knock at my door. I had just gotten off my morning phone call with Iris, and Charlie, who worked at a small engineering firm, almost never dropped by in a weekday, so I was surprised. I opened it slowly, and there stood Catherine. She held out a giant, streusel-topped muffin. Lisa dropped some of these by last night. I thought you might enjoy one, she smiled. Hopefully, you won't hold it against me, luring you into temptation with more goodies from the bakery. I laughed. Hold it against you? Are you kidding? So long as you don't tell my doctor. I pulled open the door. In fact, I just made coffee. Come in and join me. As she settled onto one of the stools by the counter that separated my kitchen from my living room, I quartered the enormous muffin and set it out on a small plate. Then I handed her a cup of coffee. Ooh, this smells good. She looked at me over the rim of her cup. I'll keep quiet about the muffin if you don't tell Nathaniel or Lisa about the coffee. I'm not supposed to have it. I had recently made a partial concession in that regard on the insistence of my own doctor. I said, Does it make it better knowing it is half decaffeinated? She sipped, Sort of. But it's kind of fun breaking the rules. I get tired of having to be so careful all the time. When I was younger, I could eat whatever I wanted, even if it was unhealthy. Nobody policed me. I hear you. It's one of my biggest annoyances with my kids. Iris is always, Mom, don't eat this, don't live that. So tiresome. Makes me want to eat onion rings covered in cheese and salt just to prove I can. I raise my mug and clinked hers. Here's to Transgression. That's when the alarm went off on my phone. I blushed, reaching to turn it off. Do you have something going on? She said. She stood. I apologize for just dropping by. Don't let me interrupt your plans. I shook my head, tucking my phone in my pocket and gestured for her to sit. Oh, no, I just... I glanced at the living room, feeling suddenly open. Well, speaking of transgression, would you be interested in joining me... I lost my nerve. I felt myself blush. She looked at me peculiarly and glanced from her watch to the television. Then she beamed. Oh, my goodness, you too? She lifted her eyebrows. So, do you think Summer will end up sleeping with Kyle? She had guessed it, my guilty pleasure, the young and the restless. I sighed. It started while I was in rehab for my knee. My roommate insisted on watching it. At first, I turned my nose up. I always thought soap operas were so ridiculous. But by the end of the first week, I was hooked. I picked at the muffin, feeling sheepish. It's so silly. She waved my embarrassment away. Oh, please. I've been watching it for years. Back when Lisa was young, everyone I knew watched it. You were a career woman, so it just took you a little longer to get hooked on the adventures of Nikki and Abbott and the whole town. Besides, is it really that different from following some of those costume dramas on cable? She slid off her stool and looked at the television in my living room. Let's watch together. It's about to start. That week, Catherine and I ate lunch nearly every day, and I got a fuller picture of her life. We were from completely different worlds. She grew up as the pampered daughter of a wealthy Savannah banker and became the cosseted judge of a wife, cosseted wife of a judge, <laughs> with a housekeeper, and a gardener. <laughs> I grew up milking cows on a farm in North Dakota where there was never enough money and the idea of household help would have been unimaginable. Deep in my heart of hearts, I've always looked down on women like Catherine An attitude I'm not particularly proud of, but still, maybe I was getting more open in my old age, or maybe I was more lonesome than I'd realized. She fascinated me. She was the real deal, a bona fide, drawling, southern debutante. Gracious and well-mannered, she was capable of letting someone know when they weren't up to standard with a raised eyebrow and a tone that was simultaneously dismissive and disappointed. She occupied her place in the world with a rock-solid certainty about the way things should be. She reminded me of some of the privileged characters in the soap operas. Both of us were early risers, and we began meeting in the lobby for a morning stroll around the halls or the sidewalk that encircled the parking lot. It was lined with trees and plants, and if the weather was nice, it was a great way to start the day. Perhaps because we were old We spent a lot of time talking about when we were young. She told me about the first time she'd ever seen snow, or at least experienced enough of it to try to make angels. I was 15. I was at the youth group in my church, which met in the basement. When we came out, it was early evening, and the light was bluish-purple. The air was sparkly and full of glitter, like in a movie. It felt like magic. Her eyes shone. At the time, I was trying to impress a boy in the choir with my sophistication, but we all ran around like excited children, sticking our tongues out, trying to taste a snowflake. I was jealous of my friend who wore glasses because she could tip her face upward and watch them melt on her lenses while I couldn't stop blinking as the flakes hit my eyes. She turned her face aglow with remembered delight. Then she became self-conscious. That must sound ridiculous to someone like you who grew up with snow. I lifted my chin, memories of my own flooding my mind. To tell you the truth, the first snow is always a little magical. Suddenly my heart was in my throat, and it was late afternoon and the shadows were stretching violet across the fields, and the whole world felt like it was holding its breath, full of mystery and hush as the first flakes landed softly on my cheeks. I swallowed. That first snowfall, especially the slow, sparkling kind, not the kind we sometimes got where it felt like the sky was throwing bullets of ice at you, but the soft, lovely, soundless kind. I pause, suffused with a sort of empty longing. Well, even us Northerners are not immune to a world full of glitter. For a moment, the emotion of those recollections hung in the air, its own kind of precipitation. We took a few more steps letting it condense and settle. When I felt recovered, I said, as if in trade, I remember the first time I saw a magnolia. More precisely, I remember the first time I smelled a magnolia in bloom. We took a school trip to Minneapolis one year, and on the University of Minnesota campus was the first hybrid that could survive the cold. I guess a professor there developed it. Generations of horticulture students have kept it going. They're marvelous trees, aren't they? I see a few of a type of magnolia planted around Chicago now. It must be really hard to keep them alive, she tilted her head, and of course they're not as big or as fragrant as the ones back home. I smiled. We walked by a lilac that had recently bloomed, and I breathed in the sweetness. You may have had magnolias, but my house was surrounded by these. I closed my eyes and focused, trying to resist the tug of nostalgia and appreciate the here and now. I heard her inhale next to me and sigh. Oh, yes, so lovely. I also began to understand her marriage. It was clear Nathaniel worshipped her, and the price she paid for his worship was accepting his bluster, as well as adopting a, well, a certain willingness to overlook unpleasantness. He kept to his fear and allowed her full reign in hers. It struck me as a distinctly old-fashioned, and rather restrictive bargain. Then again, what did I know? The older I've gotten, the more I realize there is nothing more mysterious than a marriage.
0: Thank you, Rebecca. That was Rebecca Keller reading from You Should Have Known. So, developing friendships as in, in your later years, that's... You know, there were several times in the book where Franny thinks or comments that this may be the last new friend she ever makes. (laughs) But in a way, it's like, because, I don't know, Mom, maybe you can speak to this. Do you still look to make new friends at your age? Which, do you mind if I say what your age is? No. (laughs) So Caroline will be 88 in June.
1: Oh, I make new friends all the time. Yeah,
0: yeah. Do you? But you, but you also have done an amazing job at maintaining long-term friendships, staying in touch with people. I think better than certainly better than I have done. And tell us how you do that.
1: Well, you have to you have to call them once in a while, or you know write to them or something. And I have decided. Uh, that I should make a, a list of people that I want you to notify when I pass because they want to know because they, they're they not going to hear from me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: a good point. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you still write a lot of letters,
1: don't you? Well, not as many as I used to, but I, mm-hmm. I do write some. But I, I got a, a card, an Easter card from a friend of mine, and um, I neglected to, call her and thank her for it or anything. And so she called me the other day and she was very, very worried that something was wrong. And so she wanted to find out. (laughs) So that made me realize that I really have to be more diligent about this, you know, and keep in touch. Yeah. And of
0: course, now you also use Facebook. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really real. Some of these people people aren't on Facebook (laughs)
0: though. Yeah. It's funny. My, my grandkids uh, who are 10 and 13, We were talking about social media and so forth, and they, they think, they said, well, Facebook's only for old people. And, (laughs) and I said, now, I don't know if you know this, but Facebook started as only for college kids. You had to be in college to have a Facebook account. They had no idea.
1: (laughs) I I wonder what (laughs) would have, yeah,
0: I wonder what would have happened if Facebook had, had maintained that and you know, stayed just for college kids, what it would, you know, how that would have, right. how things would be different today. Right, right.
1: Yeah. Well, that would be a lot different,
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, something else would have come up for other people, for other age groups, but it would be kind of interesting that there to have, and there are some social media things that are used primarily by young people. My grandkids don't use Facebook, don't use, don't really do Instagram, don't do anything except YouTube.
2: Oh, really? Do they do
0: TikTok? They don't do TikTok either. Maybe my grandson might have an account, but they're not, they're not into that, but they both watch YouTube a lot. My grandson has a YouTube channel, his biggest, um, he, he made this video of dinosaur memes that got like thirty thousand hits or something. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know.
2: I use YouTube a lot for in teaching because there's a lot of content on it. Oh yeah, you know, a, lot of, yeah. a lot of interviews, a lot of artists, uh, and and videos that artists have made about their work. Yeah. Um, so it, and it's you know it's usually free, which makes it easier than trying to, you know, uh, find a a source that is is more protected. I mean, social media
0: and the internet must have it has changed teaching a lot i presume i have not been to in a college classroom since the advent of these of these tools but
2: yes it's changed it it's changed it a lot yeah Um, we're good and ill yeah everything um but it's definitely changed a lot and it's made certain content more available more widely uh, but it's also made um Made it harder for I think for people to discern between a quality you know source or to to critically examine what is being said because you can there's no vetting you can say anything you want and um, and if a student it doesn't you know cross check and really think about what doesn't really think about it um, it you know they're it vulnerable.
0: Amazes how many people will believe something because it's on the internet and. Oh and yeah.
2: Say, oh well, I researched it, but yeah, researching is more than just googling something in and taking the first four hits.
0: Yeah, or the first four that happen to agree with your pre your pre <laughs> right. notions. Com- five, yeah, five, com- five, yeah, five. yeah. I ugh. and it's and now it's going to just get worse because of um, okay. these deep fakes.
2: Oh, and deep fakes. I know it's frightening. It's really yes. frightening. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> a lot of, you know, you, your book has several themes you should have known. Um, aging is one. The idea of justice and vengeance and corruption is one. And what, you know, what is excusable in the pursuit of justice and who gets to decide yeah, and so that's, it sounds like from what you said, that that was sort of your starting point. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. yeah, which is a kind of a thematic starting point rather than a character.
0: Yes, interesting, interesting. And um, did you know when you started writing, what
2: the, did you, did you know the plot
0: of the book when you started writing?
2: No, but I did have a sense uh, I was also very fascinated by, so there's a kind of obliqueness in both the, um, uh, you know, a kind of sideways logic or action in a way, in which, in, in both the, the evil done by the the antagonists, let's just say, um, which is a kind of like, they're blinded by their official action, they do something, they kind of, you know, they do it for and they're corrupt and they're doing it, but they, they don't really ever have to confront the knock on repercussions of what their actions cause, which is what irritates and enrages Franny so much. Um, but the way she, uh, the, the vengeance that she attempts, and I'm trying to be careful here because of spoilers, but right. the vengeance that she attempts is also driven by her professional knowledge.
0: And um and I and could also have repercussions she doesn't and per, exactly. doesn't it expect, doesn't anticipate. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So she's suddenly looking in the mirror thinking she's done exactly the same. And she has basically she set herself up as judge. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So she's you know, so so she and she's smart. She recognizes her own um the problematics of, of all of this. But I was very fascinated by so the the drug that she um, recognizes. She's a former nurse, and I was really I'm, I'm very fascinated by the um, the fact that you know the line between uh, a beneficial, a life saving drug and poison is very fine, yeah. and um, and and she's highly aware of that, and and the the coincidences of. Um, of what she encounters and her husband's her late husband's you know medical situation. I'm I'm sort of trying to tip to Yeah off.
1: yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> so but but so I was very I, I had learned about that um that um medical situation and with that particular uh drug and was was fascinated by it. Um, and so that was another little little bit of DNA that sort of led me to, well, I want this person to be a nurse, to be knowledgeable about medicine and to be knowledgeable about the procedures in places like this. Um, so, yeah, so that, was, that
0: so, was another. So at what point in the writing process did you know how, what the ending would be?
2: <laughs> uh, I rewrote the back third of the book three times. Oh, wow. And, um, and I can't even, I mean, I don't even, the, I don't even know where to begin to describe the first, the first ending was completely different, completely different than, than this. Um, <laughs> and, um, but then, and I, I can't even remember how I got from, I, I really, I can't remember how I got from there in which there was sort of an out external um, bad actor that had nothing to do with uh, the, another resident in, in, in the,
1: um, in the
2: uh, facility. Um, but the minor characters are all the characters were in place. And then this person kind of came from the outside and um, I suddenly thought, yeah, th- I don't, you know, this, I don't want, even though I really liked a couple of the chapters in it, I were really, really, <laughs> really exciting. I thought, Oh, this is awesome. But I decided that it just seemed, I don't know. It just wasn't
0: too convenient cool maybe or yeah. too, too but, contrived.
2: Um, may, More um, sort of, you know what it was? I had become so involved and interested in these characters that I felt like there was more, I was more interested in what would happen if I stayed with these characters than introducing this kind of outside, you know, uh, uh, evil guy. And so um, so I think, I think that that was kind of my, you know, I, I just kept being pulled back to the central dilemmas of these characters. And so then um, I rewrote, I wrote it one way, and I really liked it. it. Was kind of twisty and, and darker, um, but I also um, it 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 really changed the way I thought about Franny, and I felt it like kind of broke faith with her character a little bit. Mm. And so I thought about well, what would happen if this the way it worked out you know, the way I, the choice I ended up making, what if we did went in that direction? I thought that makes a little more sense. And it also offered up more opportunities for um, for, the, for the reader to stick with Franny and in a sympathetic way and for her, um, but for her to really suddenly see this duality that she and the judge and, and to have these realizations that she is in her own way as complicit, as com- culpable, you know, as capable of doing something really, you know, Really wrong. bad really wrong um and and the kind of self um and and then trying to fix it, you know she she did somersaults to try to fix this, and she does she ends up you know sort of fixing it somehow, um kind of by accident, I mean, she got very lucky, yeah <laughs> but, yeah, but um yeah, so that so that's um that's how it happened, so I wrote the last and end of the book. That was sort of my third stab at a way that felt, um, it felt real, it felt in, in keeping with the characters, it felt um, not gratuitous, and it felt, it, it sort of honored my original intentions, which were, you know, to think about moral complications and, and you know, how we all, you know, the stakes we all have in justice and, and what can we forgive and what can we forget and what can't we just get past and then there's the
0: issue of, um, the vulnerability of our immigrant labor force. Yes. That is so vital for, industry. These, yeah, and for many industries, but certainly in, in caretaking. And that it's, you know, you, you, you don't hit it, you don't hit us over the head with that, but you know, that's an important point that you're making too.
2: It is. And, and that the the re, rethinking the end of the book allowed me to let those characters breathe and to be and to have to be consequential, you know, for there to be stakes um, and for for Franny to have to kind of navigate, you know, how you how she interacts with people who don't really work for her, but kind of do. And, um, you know, given Catherine's ease with with help. You know, and her own like she's she's really kind of flummoxed by this, and becomes invested in the well-being of these, um, especially a few you, young women, as you mentioned, who are immigrants, or one in particular. And she she realizes that she has a sort sort of, or she feels that she has a certain kind of obligation to them.
0: Yeah, so, that they don't take the blame for they something don't. they didn't do. Right. Yeah. Yes. So, Caroline, we just have a couple minutes. Do you have any last questions?
1: Well, I, I just want to tell all our listeners that this absolutely is a must-read, <laughs> and um, I, hope, <laughs> I hope, hope that they do, because it, it was very interesting. It really was.
0: So, Rebecca, Great.
1: I'm curious about,
0: is your audience mostly women of a certain age, or are, are you getting a broader
2: audience? I'm getting a broader audience, much to my delight. I mean, I think the audience for fiction in general tends to to be women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, but it seems to be, um, cutting across the, um, you know, there's some people who are interested in mystery. I think the whole marketing thing has been interesting because it is suspense and some people said oh it's such a page oh, yeah. I was up all night a friend of mine just posted on Facebook you know I I'm late for work because I was up late reading this book and I couldn't put it down and of course that that's awesome but uh, other people you know it's it has an it's not a typical mystery in that there's a dead body on the first page and the, the detective shows up at page 7 it, you know and, and no shade on those books i mean i read those books but it's not it's not that, that kind of book yeah um It's kind of, you know, literary. Um, there's a lot of attention to character and language. Yes. Um, So it's, it doesn't easily slot. Um, and so, so I think it's finding an audience with people who are, um, are interested in mysteries, uh, interested in work about women and women's lives in the totality of women's lives. Um, I think it's a great book for book clubs. So, you know, I I don't know exactly what book club fiction is, but I think this is it.
0: (laughs) This is it. (laughs) Well, listen, Rebecca, we are out of time. We want to thank you so much for being with us today. And Caroline, do you have some closing words?
1: Well, I'll tell you what. I've been wanting to use this one for a long time. And I don't know if it really fits here, but a friend of mine says it, a, a classmate, high school classmate. Nobody's perfect. And uh, I must be perfect because I'm a nobody.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Um, My pleasure. Thank you for the
2: wonderful conversation.
0: Look forward to your next book. Thank you. (laughs)
2: you.
0: (laughs) See you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you.